In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There, our Genesis foundation sprang from the will and word of the great I Am. Woven deep into these foundations are rich truths of God and man, sin and righteousness, life and death, and everything else of ultimate consequence. What God started in Genesis is now settled and completed in Christ Jesus. We've been working through the book of Genesis the past couple of weeks. Um, Moses in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 has been describing to us a pretty perfect place, right? You know, everything that God had created was good. Uh, he looked at it, it was good. You know, perfect plants, perfect trees, perfect Adam, and perfect Eve. You know, I mean, all of it was good. You know, it was just great. You know, there's this, you know, I was thinking, you know, if, if, we here in Southwest Florida today, it's supposed to be like 82, 85 degrees. You know, for Adam and Eve, they wake up, you know, every morning and it's that perfect weather. Whatever that perfect weather is for you, it'd be to me about 78, 80 degrees. Blue sky. I mean, everything just absolutely wonderful. It's a great place, right? The garden, perfect in every way. And then comes chapter three. The fall, the fall of man. I was thinking, you know, this, this whole idea of how the fall happens and, and it's pretty incredible. And, and it was a decision, you know, the decision of Adam and Eve to partake of the fruit. And, you know, it's a life-changing decision. And we've all had those life-changing decisions, haven't we? Those moments in time where we know that, they, that what happened there, the decisions that we made altered the course of our life forever. For me, looking back on my life, I have my undergraduate degrees in accounting. And when I graduated from college, I went and I was a, an accounting auditor for a bank for a season, short season, yeah. And I made that decision to leave that accounting world and go to seminary. And I have no regrets about the decisions I made, but over the past 40 years, I have often looked back and I thought, hmm, wonder how my life would have been different if I had stayed an accountant instead of going into ministry, right? My decisions affected me and my family, but Adam and Eve's decision has affected all of mankind. Everyone is affected by the fall. None of us have had that kind of decision to make. This morning, we're gonna work through the whole chapter of chapter three, it's 24 verses. We're gonna do our best. Uh, I am noted on our teaching team as the one who is kind of like rock solid on his time. Some of you notice that and make comments about, man, you're always so timely. Well, this morning might be the exception. And I'm warning you. Uh, it is 24 extensive verses, uh, but we're going to kind of do a flyover. We're going to do the best we can. And I'm going to be honest with you up front. There's going to be a bulk of the teaching is going to come in the first part of the chapter. So don't panic. Don't think you're going to be here all day. You know, we're going to get you out. Okay. So if you have your app or Bible, uh, um, turn to chapter three of Genesis. 
And we're going to look at the fall of man. In Genesis 3, verse 1, immediately Moses introduces us to Satan. Who is Satan? He says in Genesis 3, 1, now the servant was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. A couple things to note about who Satan was. First of all, Moses tells us that he was a created being, right? And he also tells us that he was the most crafty of every creature. We fortunately have the whole counsel of the word of God. So if you flip over to Revelations 12, 9, John speaking there in Revelation says, the great dragon who was cast out, that servant of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So from Revelation, we learn that Satan was a fallen angel and because of his rebellion, he was cast down to earth along with his other angels. But one of the things that we see in Revelation is that he was the great deceiver. He is the one who deceives, right? John also tells us in the, the, the book of John, John 8, 44, you were of the father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Satan... He's a murderer, he's a liar, he's a deceiver. And then Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 to 15 says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So Satan is described as crafty. He's a deceiver, he's a liar, he's a murderer, he's the angel of light. You know, for many years I led mission, mission trips with, with students and with young adults and we would do these dramas in, in different venues, whether it be school or city parks, street evangelism sometimes. And we often would, in these dramas, we would have character. We'd have someone representing Jesus and we'd have somebody representing Satan. And Jesus is always pictured with a white robe, regal, and Satan always pictured kind of evil, you know, horns coming out of his head and dark cape and, you know, there's, you know, trying to conjure. And maybe for a drama, that works well. You know, it certainly helps communicate the character. But the reality is that Satan is crafty. He's deceptive. He's not as obvious as our drama was seeking to portray him. So how does Satan deceive? What is his tool? In verse 1b, it says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This deception, this tool of Satan to use this deceptiveness, he attacks God's word. He says, did God actually say to Eve? Did God actually say? Now, how many of us live in that world where people are constantly challenging the word of God, the truth of God's word? Satan attacks God's word. That's a st still a tool he uses today is to attack the word or challenge the very word of God. It's interesting, Eve's rebuttal in verses two and three, she says, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the 
midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So Eve expounds on God's word, takes God's word and says more than what God had said. The woman, instead of standing confidently on what God had said, decided to manipulate those words and make it seem more confining, more restrictive. I can help, not help but re, be reminded of how the Israelites in the wilderness did the same thing. It took God's word. They start building laws upon it. The Pharisees in the New Testament did the same thing and we're still doing it today. As if God's word is not enough. We want to continue to make it something bigger and more restrictive. You can't eat. You can't even touch, she says. And then Satan says, Verses four and five, Satan's attack on God's character. So he attacks the word, he also attacks God's character. But the servant said to the woman, you shall surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So first, Satan attacks God's word and then he attacks God's character. He's saying, basically, you know, God is being selfish. He's holding back from you. God knows that if you partake of that fruit, that you'll be like him, and he doesn't want you to be like him. He's selfish. He's self-centered. He's not thinking about your best. He's not thinking about your good. He's thinking about himself. That's why he's put these restrictions on you. You know, Eve, if you, could just, you could be your own God. Just partake of that fruit. Be like God. So many of us in our walk, we're challenged with that same idea, you know, to be our own God, to be the captain of our own ship, to have self on the throne of our life, to make our own decisions in life, right? I was uh, thinking, uh, as I was studying, I was thinking about how that process of you know, challenging the word of God and, and challenging, attacking God's character leads to, you know, if, if, if God's word is not trustworthy and his character is not trustworthy, then what are we left with? We're left with our own understanding, our own reasoning, right? Uh, multi, eventually, it comes down to that idea that I can figure this out on my own. I remember when I was in college, uh, my freshman year, I stayed at home, long story. Anyway, I had a couple friends that were dating uh, this guy and this girl were dating, and I was having this conversation with this guy. They were, went to church with me. They were, you know, believers in Christ. They um, well respected. Um, and as I'm talking to the, the the gentleman, he was telling me, you know, I'm really having trouble with with uh, my girlfriend. You know that you know I'm ready to commit. Now, mind you, we're 18, 19. Um, we're young. Because, you know, we're ready to commit. And he said, I, I think that since we're ready to commit and I want to ask her to marry me and we're going to get married, she's the one that, you know, we ought to be able to go further in our intimacy. And she just doesn't see that. And I'm like, well, what does God's word say? Well, it doesn't really matter because, you know, what's a piece of paper after all? What's a marriage license? Does that really, does that really make any difference? And I've often thought through the years of how easy it is for us to dismiss God's word for our own reasoning, right? What we think makes more sense than what God has said. Some of us may struggle. You know, we're in tax season, right? Um, 
may think, you know, as we come into tax season, you're doing your taxes. Now, I'm not stepping on any toes. I'm sure this does not apply to anyone in here. But you may be tempted. The enemy may tempt you to not be as truthful, not be as honest, try to hold back. Because after all, does the government need more of my money? Somebody was telling me after Hurricane Ian, um, a roofer, a friend of mine, told me that he witnessed homeowners on their roof cracking some of their roofing tiles to make claims for insurance. I'm like, man, I hope that that person doesn't claim to be a believer in Christ. Manipulating and lying to get is fraud. But we can justify our actions because how much, how many thousands of dollars do we pay on premiums, right? So, you know, if I make, pay all that money to the insurance company, I ought to be able to get a new roof. It's crazy how we justify what we want. And I think that Eve was doing the same thing. Satan is deceiving Eve to thinking that God's word is not enough, that God is restrictive, he's not not really good, he's not really kind. What we need to know is that we have an enemy. We have an enemy, he's seeking to kill, steal, and destroy us. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be so reminded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Our greatest weapon against the fight of the enemy is knowing the word of God. Having our minds filled with God's truth is our greatest weapon in fighting off the enemy of the, the, Satan. I'm afraid that we're getting more and more biblically illiterate in our world. I'm afraid that people are rushing to religious experiences instead of really being taught sound doctrine and the truth of who God is. And if we're not standing on the truth of God's word, then we're standing on a very, very shifting, shifty foundation. See, Satan comes across as this neutral observer wanting Eve to believe that he's after her good, that it's God who is restrictive and holding back from her. That God is not good enough. C.S. Lewis says this, it's the magician's bargain. Give up your souls, get power in return. But once our souls, that is ourselves, have been given up, The power thus conferred will not belong to us. We shall, in fact, be slaves and puppets of that to which we have given our souls. And then we see the second point is the immediate fallout, the passion. In verse six, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. And she took from its fruit and ate also, gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The fall happens. That temptation thrown in front of Adam and Eve and they partake of the fruit and the fall happens. From their mind to the emotions, the woman saw what was there and she was discontent with the abundance that God had given her. And she thought, of all that God had given her, he had restricted something. And that became the focus of her desire. 
her passion. James 1, verse 13 through 17 tells us, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is a good God. God has given us everything we need. His character is flawless. Adam and Eve should have trusted in God's word, his sovereign word given to them. And they should have trusted in his character, that he was a good God. Satan's big lie is that the Bible is narrow. God's word is narrow, restrictive, unkind, puts us in bondage, and that ultimately God is holding back from us what is best. Next comes the shame. In verses seven through 10, then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I've heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The eyes were open for the first time to their sin and shame. So their answer to their sin and shame was to cover themselves with fig leaves. Now, can you imagine going out and finding leaves and, and making some kind of loincloth, something to cover yourself? Can't imagine that would be too comfortable. See, no longer was the garden the perfect place that God had intended it to be, but the fall happens. And as a result of the fall, Adam and Eve tried to cover, hide their sin with fig leaves. It's the first time that humans ever sought to cover their shame by their own work, something that they have done. But man has continued to do it through the ages. Let me just see, if I can just work a little harder, do a little more, be a little better, God will love me, God will bless me, then I can, I can earn righteousness, I can earn my way to heaven. God's question, where are you? God knew the answer. He's all-knowing, right? I remember um, my kids, when they were, we're empty nesters now, but when my kids were growing up, you know, say we pull up into my driveway and they get out and they run in the house and I see that my son's left the door open and he's left his book bag in the car and I say, hey, Josh, where's your book bag? I know where the book bag is. I'm not asking the question for my benefit. I'm not asking the question because I don't know the answer. I'm asking the question for his benefit. I'm asking the question to get him to admit that he left his book bag in the car. And I'm asking the question, not only for his benefit, to acknowledge that his book bag is in the car, but I want him to go get the book bag out of the car and to shut the door. God, when he asked the question here of Adam and Eve, it's not for God's benefit. God knew exactly what had happened but it's to get Adam and Eve to recognize what they've done. And then we see the blame. 
In verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Once again, God all knowing knew the answer, but he throws that rhetorically out to them to get them to think about what they have done. He wants them to admit their own shortcomings, what had happened. In verse 12, it says, the man said, the woman whom you gave me, the woman whom you gave me. Now, last week, Chad talked about how this was a good thing, right? This, this woman was a good thing. And now it's the woman's fault, right? It's the woman you gave me. So by extension, man, man is not only blaming the woman, but he's also blaming God because God is the one who gave him this woe man. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, it's the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the man blames the woman and the woman blames the serpent. Neither want to take responsibility for their own sin. We live in a world where people are hesitant to take responsibility for their own sin. In order for us to come into a right relationship with a holy God, we have to confess that we are sinners that we have fallen short of the glory of God. It's crazy that even our legal system today, we hear about stories about where people are not found guilty for a crime that they did because, oh, they have had such and such thing in their life and because this has happened to them, we're gonna give them a pass. We've built a culture, a society, a people that don't want to take responsibility for their own shortcomings and failures. I think one of the hallmarks of good character is to owning up when we make mistakes for the mistake that we've made. And then we see the fallout in verse 14. Satan's curse and God's promise. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, I'm sorry, he shall bruise your, your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Two big points here. First of all, Satan, Satan will always be an enemy of humanity. He will be our arch enemy. In Ephesians, it tells us, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know, our battle is a spiritual battle. It's against Satan. But in verse 15, something incredible happens. God promises a redeemer. It's called the protevangelum. It's meaning the first gospel. The first gospel. While speaking the truth of the consequence of the rebellion that Satan would endure, God also speaks of a coming redeemer. A coming redeemer. God sets the motion, a plan to redeem his people. Understand that they have fallen but God is gonna make a way where there was no way. He says, this messianic prophecy is, he shall bruise your head. What, the seed of the woman is gonna bruise the head of the enemy. 
And by bruising the head, it's, 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 it's stomping on the head, it's destroying the head. Yes, the enemy is going to bruise his heel, far different than crushing someone's head. The serpent's gonna bite the heel of the woman's seed, Jesus. But the Satan, the enemy is going to receive a crushing blow that will be destroying him. And the power of the cross would crush Satan's whole empire, strip him of his authority, especially the authority over death. Pretty amazing that right here in the fall, we see immediate plan of redemption. This shows us that God always had a plan. He always had a way in mind. The curse of the serpent that was laced with words of hope. The woman's curse. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The woman shall bear in childbearing, shall be pain and conflict in marriage. And to the man, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten, there's so much that we could say right there, right? but we're not. (laughs) Exactly, I heard somebody say. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days, you, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken and for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So to Adam, he says, last week Chad said to us that work was not the curse of the fall. But the fact that we are going to labor by the sweat of our brow was the curse of man that work was going to become hard. And if you think about it, this garden that was perfect, everything was productive, doing exactly what it was intended. Now it was going to take effort and work in order to produce. And then we see God's grace. God's grace. In verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Those two verses, profound meaning. If you reach back to 15, this promise of a coming redeemer, Adam had faith. He believed in what God had said, that there would be a coming redeemer out of the seed of the woman. And so he calls the woman. Remember, there had been no children that had been Uh, been born yet. And so out of the woman, Adam believes by faith that there would be children to come and that out of that seed, there would be one that would crush the head of Satan. Adam names the woman Eve for she was the mother of all living. Contrast that to the sentence of death that God had just imposed. Adam attests and believes by faith 
that God is able. Faith not like you and I, because we have the whole counsel of the word of God, but faith according to what God had spoken to him at that point. Adam's response to God's punishment. Trust in God's promises to bring through his wife a seed that would crush the enemy. It's an amazing truth that we see that God had given a promise and Adam in faith had responded to that promise that God would be faithful. Romans 5 tells us this, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through one man, Jesus. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, and so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. See, the result of the fall, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The result of one man's death, all may have life forevermore. In verse 21 Moses tells us, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Remember, Adam and Eve tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves, right? God reveals to us here in 21 that fig leaves were not going to cover the shame of their sin. It was a feeble attempt on their behalf it was an effort of works righteousness to do it their way. But God sacrificed the first animal, the shed blood, and took the skin and was able to cover Adam and Eve's body. The sacrifice of an animal would cover their shame. It'd be the first death in history an innocent animal had to die. Adam and Eve's vain attempt to cover themselves, similar to our situation today, when we think that our works can earn us something in this life. And you know, every religion, apart from, uh, the, uh, apart from alignment with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, does the same thing. They think that work, somehow working, 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 is gonna earn me God's favor. It's not the truth. Religious systems always will fall short. But a relationship with Jesus Christ is what Christ seeks. Hebrews 9:22 tells us indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood 
there is no forgiveness. The means of us becoming right in a right relationship with a holy God is only through the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said this, some creatures had to die. Some creature had to die in order to provide them with the garments. And you know who it is that died in order that we might be robed in spotless righteousness. The Lamb of God was made for us a garment which covers our nakedness so that we are not afraid to stand before the bar of God. What an amazing truth. So yes, the fall happened. But God steps into that scene and he gives us hope, a hope of a redeemer, a hope of a redeemer that was gonna shed his blood for our sin, for all those who repent and turn to him. Ask him to step into their life. He will make a way.